Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, guys, we got a good one today. Kevin Meacham joins the show. He is a uh, former Daily Campus UConn basketball writer, and you would all know him as one half of the popular Twitter sensation, No Escalators. So um, we're going to be talking about the 2009 regular season showdown between UConn and Louisville. Uh, UConn was ranked number one in the country at the time. Uh, they had just been, uh, they just bumped up to number one that day. Louisville, uh, actually, I believe, ended the regular season ranked number one and uh, was consistently a really good team that year. And this game was fun. Um, so UConn basically goes to Louisville and kind of just kicks their ass. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I guess just kind of to start off, I mean, you know, you you kind of recommended this game. So what did it, what about this game that stood out to you that made the this one one uh, I guess worth talking about and remembering all these years later? Yeah. So I guess I should preface all of this because uh, I'll probably say some over over the top outlandish things about this team um, this is my favorite UConn basketball team of all time um, I should preface that by saying I graduated in 2009 so this was my team <laughs> um, and this this was a just such a fun time to be on campus um, especially as a senior because you know the women had been number one since November and uh, UConn and the men had finally gotten to number one um, two days earlier by just absolutely obliterating Providence at Gamble. Um, and, of course, Providence at that time had been kind of the, the boogeyman for UConn. They'd beaten us several times uh, in a row um, and humiliated us at home a couple times in the recent memory. And for that team to just go, you know, absolutely uh, ham on Providence and get to number one was, was so cathartic. And then two days later, they turn around and they've got this game against a top five Louisville team. Uh, that goes, you know, goes on to be a one seed, and uh, I believe uh, won the Big East, or uh, I believe they were the one seed in the Big East tournament and won the conference tournament. Um, so, and and this game just serves as such a beautiful example of what this team was all about, and the way they just absolutely bludgeon teams. Um, so that's that's my choice for this uh, this team. One of my favorite games. I think it sums them up really well because this season didn't have very many dramatic games like you know you see in so 2011 and 2014 those teams had some really epic games with some really wild finishes and this team didn't have very many of those because they kind of just smoked everybody they played and it was kind of refreshing just to see a game where UConn goes into the game as the number one team in the country and they go to Freedom Hall so this is the last year of Freedom Hall before Louisville opens up the KFC Yum Center and I mean this is like as dangerous a game as you get because that that Louisville team was legit and UConn smoked them it wasn't close like at all I think Terrence Williams was the only guy on Louisville who actually showed up and like played well and otherwise it was just a complete manhandling so I mean we haven't seen a team like this in in ages like UConn's won two national championships but I do agree like this UConn team was just a wagon and for them to put a performance like this was it was really refreshing just to say because yeah, this past decade, even the good UConn teams haven't you know killed people like this. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something controversial that may get people angry, but that's you know I'm happy to do that. Um, this I think is I think this is the best UConn team that didn't win a national championship. Um, and I think at full strength, had Jerome Dyson not gotten hurt two weeks after this game, um, I think they I think they roll North Carolina. Um, 
people will disagree with me on that, but I, I will believe it until you know my dying day. Because um, I mean, this team it was just physically dominant in a way that you know no no UConn team since certainly two thousand four I would say could just physically dominate you. Between Thabit and Adrian, like I, there was no better front court in the country. Stanley Robinson at the three, who could kind of he doesn't play any impact at all in this game, but, um, you know, he's such an important presence on this team. And then the guards are just really solid. Um, AJ price is so underrated as a decision maker, as a shooter, um, Dyson, when he was not the, the number one option, taking 10 shots a game. And, um, as he did in other seasons could be a very effective off guard. And then this is freshman Kemba Walker. Who's, uh, really shows a lot of his potential in this game and then goes on to have a couple really huge games down the stretch for UConn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that team, that team was crazy. And, uh, I think it probably helps for, for people to understand where this team kind of came from. So this was my first UConn basketball team. So I was a freshman at UConn and this was literally my introduction to the whole UConn experience. So for me, it was like, oh, wow, I get to come right in and have this awesome team. But I know for you, you guys had you, I believe the 2006 team was your freshman year, if I recall, correct? Yep. So you have that year and then which was a similarly dominant team that was ultimately a little bit of a disappointment. And then the two years in between, the 07 team was really a big like rebuilding bridge year type thing. And then 2008, I, from what I, from what I've heard, kind of had a whole like, you know, they're not quite there yet, but they're kind of, you can tell that this team has some potential. So what do you remember about sort of the lead up to the 2009 season and kind of how it felt uh, to sort of see the progression from where they started to the heights that they reached in this season and in this game especially? Well, I think one of the things that made that 09 team so special, certainly to me, is that there was such a, a clear narrative progression and there was a continuity with the roster that you really don't see anywhere in college basketball anymore. Certainly not at UConn in the last couple of years. Because you had Jeff Adrian and Craig Austry who were on the um, the 2016 that lost to George Mason. And other than that, the entire roster of that 2017 was brand new. And it was, you know, uh, the guys uh, who st- stuck it out and were on this team, Thabit and Dyson and um, Stanley and Gavin, and then also guys like Curtis Kelly, who didn't work out, Marcus Johnson, who didn't work out. Um, and there was this real period of two th- in 2007 where it was just a bunch of freshmen who were lost. And Calhoun couldn't get it to work, and, you know, they're probably uh, – it was an, a terrible offensive team that showed some promise on defense because, it, again, it was physically just a really strong team, and you could tell that there was some kind of something there. Um the following year, you know, you start to see that core of guys coalesce and they become, um, you know, you, you figure out the roles and they get a little bit better on offense and Thabit develops some uh, skills around the basket. He's not just a defensive player. Um, Dyson starts to play a little bit more under control. A.J. Price starts to blossom into that point guard who can really lead a team. Um, they go on a 10-game winning streak in the middle of the season with Dyson and um uh, Wiggins, Doug Wiggins, uh, getting suspended, and at that point you can kind of see the th- the parts start clicking. They they win ten in a row, and I think most of them were by two or three points, um, certainly one or two possessions, and 
you know, you, you can see the potential and you can start to see them reach the potential and then, you know, the end of the season doesn't go well, they get smoked by West Virginia in the Big East tournament and then A.J. Price tears his ACL in the NCAA tournament and they lose to San Diego in the first round. Um, so th- there was a lot of pressure going into the 2009 season because this group of guys, Adrian and Austria accepted, had not won a postseason game. And they had not, you know, they, they, I think they ended up as a four seed in 2008, and they were ranked at some point in 2007, but they'd never really been, you know, that dominant UConn team. So they started the season in the top five. I think they, uh, they started 11-0, uh, lost to Georgetown, and then they came back and they just started, you know, hammering teams. They, they in, Just in January, they go to um, a really good West Virginia team and win. They beat a really a, a Villanova team that goes to the Final Four. They beat them in a fun game. They go to Notre Dame and end Notre Dame's something 46-48 game home winning streak. And then they crush Providence, and now they're number one. And now, now all the pieces are in place. Kemba adding to the roster gives them that little bit of spice, that little bit of something extra to get them over the top. And it really feels like this team is destined to uh, just destroy everyone. And that's pretty much what happens here. And at that point, um, you know, it really felt like there was something special with this group. The fact that they were able to run roughshod over the Big East like they did, it feels like especially impressive just because I think this might have been the best Big East conference ever. And I mean, which basically means it was probably the best conference in any, you know, anywhere in college basketball ever. Because, I mean, you have like, how would you, what would you say, nine, ten teams who are all legitimately really, really good, like, like like a like a number ten team in the Big East tournament. I forget exactly who it was. Is probably a top four seed in most other conferences. Like this, they, they were just so loaded. Like I'd forgotten. Like this Louisville team was was awesome, and I like completely forgot about them. And like Marquette was awesome this year. Um, you know, Pitt was obviously the one that you remember. And like, but just like every single game, you're just going up against someone really really good. So. The fact that UConn was able to just whoop everybody like that was was incredible, and this game was really kind of the the in retrospect really the the big one because I think leading into this game a lot of teams had been number one and just lost. I think Pitt had the same thing happen to them. They went to Freedom Hall and they got they lost like right away after they were ranked number one. So kind of UConn's ability to win this game in the fashion they did was pretty was pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean this. I, this I, I, honestly, I would say the 2011 Big East was a deeper conference, but in terms of just t- like the top of the conference, I don't think any league can match the Big East in 2009. Um, they had three number one seeds, um, came pretty close to having three Final Four teams. Louisville lost to Michigan State in the Elite Eight, and uh, obviously Villanova got to the Final Four, and they were the fourth best team in the Big East this year. Um, it really put everything together to have this team be this good in this year um, for that reason. Because it really was every single night um, you were playing a team that, even if they didn't make the tournament, was pretty competent. Like that Providence team that they beat by 30, they won 19 games, played in the NIT. Um, the Georgetown team they lost to was an NIT team. Um, there really there, there were a couple really bad teams, but... Um, the top half of the conference was just so good. Yeah, and that Georgetown team they lost to, I mean, they weren't that bad either. Like, I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but Greg Monroe was on that team, if I recall, right? 
I think he was a yeah, that was his freshman year. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, they made the NIT, but like, you know, it's not like they were they were a bunch of scrubs. It was, you know, it was a good it was a good year for sure. Um, yeah. So this game, UConn goes in. They're they're twenty and one, and um, yeah, like like we said, uh, they're you know. This was a this was a trap game or a dangerous game if there ever was one. I mean, you know, this is exactly the kind of game you expect a good team to lose. And if it happens, you're like, okay, well, I mean, you know, they went on the road. You know, Louisville's really good, but yeah. So basically, so my notes on this game for the first half, I have a decent amount of notes, and the second half is literally just like five items. The second half had no drama whatsoever. They they really just kind of just just killed them. So the thing that struck out to me though is that. Louisville has, I, I want to say this, they must have scored almost all of their points in like two distinct, like, kind of bursts. And the first, like, five minutes of the game, they definitely were doing pretty well. Uh, the, the Rick Patino press is flying all over the place. They're getting turnovers. They're getting steals. You know, Terrence Williams is hitting all kinds of shots. He gets called for two quick fouls, and then it doesn't even really matter. He stays in the game, and I don't, I don't think he got called for another foul the rest of the way. So yeah, that's like... You know, Louis, UConn kind of survives that whole stretch and then goes to work. But, uh, I mean, you you know this Louisville kind of during this era with Rick Pitino, Louisville, this is just what they tried to do. They were, you know, kind of the, the big pressure and just try to out, outwork teams. So what do you remember about kind of the, the early part and, uh, you know, UConn kind of surviving that early burst by Louisville? Yeah, I mean, things didn't start well. They, the press of Louisville, which is, you know, one of the better uh, – pressing teams in the country at that point. Um, they made it really hard, and they, they forced turnovers from a team that really didn't turn the ball over, um, forced tough shots. Um, and again, yeah, as you said, Terrence Williams, I think he scores 26 in this game um, out of their 51, and he, he was a problem. Um, so I, I think it took it took Williams you know, foul, getting out of the game in foul trouble for things to kind of take control, and then as UConn starts to get into the game a little bit, and they slow the game down, play at their pace, um, it becomes a much more uh, Calhoun-style, you know, later Calhoun-style game where it's, you know, UConn asserting itself defensively with Thabit and Adrian and then um, getting enough guard play that they're able to kind of stretch out the lead at some point. So one one thing I noticed, uh, one thing I noticed that was pretty notable, so Stanley Robinson gets called for two quick fouls right away, and then that's it. He doesn't. He he, he doesn't come back. Calhoun straight up benches him for the whole rest of the game. And uh, he he switches. I think he puts Austrian. Uh, but ultimately, it was a three guard set for the rest of the way. And he and the post game uh, like interview with Aaron Andrews, he specifically mentions how by going to three guards, they kind of took Louisville out of their game. And that was you know pretty noticeable because like Louisville's whole thing is you know they try to harass you and force turnovers. So by switching to the three guards. You can almost tell right away, like you know, Louis, it's not working. Louis, Louisville can't like get all the turnovers they need, and you know, you're seeing, you know, half the time they get a steal, but then the other half of the time they'll hit Adrian in transition and he dunks it. That happened a lot, and um, yeah, you know, it was demoralizing for Louisville clearly because after their burst initially, they don't really do a whole lot more until like this one other run that they have later, and that was kind of their last big push. Yeah, and I think that shows. You know the depth, the guard depth that that team had. The way they could, yeah. I mean, between Austrian Price and Kemba when he's on the court, I think he he plays quite a bit in this game. Um, 
um, there there was a surprising amount of passing that made this team a little bit more versatile than the teams uh, the previous couple years. You know, it, it was a team where you know you could either pass through opponents or you could have someone like Kemba sprint down the, the length of the court and then find someone to dish you and, and it's an easy bucket. And I, I think Louisville was a particularly bad match for this UConn team, uh, which is also one of the reasons why I'm upset they lost to Michigan State in the Elite Eight. Um, but I, I, I really think if they play this game ten times, um, you know, I, I think UConn has the guard depth to just overwhelm them every single time. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something there. So I just looked over the minutes played. So Thabit plays 39 minutes, so he's on the court the whole time. Jeff Adrian plays 36 minutes, so he's basically out there the whole time. And then the uh, other guys to all see the court, like any meaningful amount, was uh, all the guards. So you have Dyson, Price, uh, Kemba, and Austri. You know, the first three guys I mentioned are all over 30 minutes, and Austri plays 21. Like, other than that, you know, Stan- Stanley Robinson, you know, who, who normally is out there a lot, only those two minutes. And then Gavin Edwards, like, pops in for, like, five minutes to give uh, Adrian a break at one point. So otherwise, they were, yeah, just kind of cycling through the the guards. And, um, yeah, Louisville's, like, other than Terrence Williams, like, honestly, like, it's hilarious how bad they were. Like, they, they play, like, everybody on their roster. You know, you have almost, yeah, just all kinds of guys playing all kinds of minutes. And Williams is the only guy who can hit a shot. Earl Clark goes two for 16 in 33 minutes and has four points. It's terrible. Like, it's, it's a, yeah. It's a nightmare game. Yeah, what did you think about just this Louisville team in particular? Because, like I said at the top, I mean, other than Williams, like I didn't really remember this team. So seeing some like Samardo Samuels is a name I haven't thought about in at least a decade. You know, Edgar Sosa, <laughs> Earl Clark. Like I was like, who? like oh yeah, that's right, I remember that guy. So yeah, so this obviously this team was good, but this wasn't their finest hour. So what do you what did you make of this team, especially just like in this particular game? This is like a Hall of Fame team of like remembering guys like Samardo Samuels as you said Edgar Sosa like uh, Preston Knowles is on this team um like it was a very talented team I think it was missing that one you know star I think this was a, a, certainly a case where it was a bunch of good players to fit well um very athletic super athletic I mean Terrence Williams uh was a handful uh every time he played UConn um I remember it being a pretty scary matchup going into the game and a, a definite, you know, concerns because they're a little bit quicker than UConn's front court. You'd figure that they could take advantage um, maybe of Adrian or maybe uh, of Stanley if he had played, you know, the full 40 minutes. Um, and it just it just didn't work out that the quickness and the ball handling of UConn just uh, was too much for them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So the so kind of the quick play by play. So Louisville at the under sixteen timeout is up by three. They're up fourteen to eleven, and then that was kind of the the last time they really were in control. Uh, Jeff Adrian hit a shot to give UConn a fifteen fourteen lead. Like it, it ended up actually it wound up being like three and a half minutes later. So it was like a weird like low scoring couple minutes, and then yeah, then UConn goes on a ten to nothing run. Uh, you know, Kemba hits a floater and, you know, Patino finally has enough. He calls timeout. 
And during the stretch, the strangest thing happened. It felt like Louisville traveled on like five consecutive possessions. It was really weird. Do, do, do you remember noticing that? It was like around the 10-minute mark of the first half. Like like every time down the court, the guy like kind of shuffles a little bit, and the ref's like, like traveling, and the crowd's like groaning, like, what the hell is going on out here? I've never seen anything like it. Like you might get one travel, maybe two. There was like at least four. It was crazy. I didn't remember that specific sequence, but I, I do remember this being a, a classic um, mad Louisville crowd. Who they they this uh, they they did not like any of the calls that went against them, and and this I think the foul disparity is pretty large, if I remember correctly. It was like I think it's uh, yeah. UConn has nine fouls called on it the entire game. Yeah, it, I think. <laughs> but yeah. that was that was what that team did. Like they didn't foul. They had a giant who could block every shot, and they could play aggressive on the perimeter. And they had guys who block shots without fouling. It was it was spectacular. The free throw disparity in this game was actually really hilarious. U- UConn goes twenty for twenty four from the line. So you know, obviously, that's a good percentage, and that's you know a lot of free throws. Louisville was uh, they were two for two for the for the whole <laughs> for the whole game. That is that's incredible. Like I I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> That was just the way these two teams played. Like Louisville was, you know, they they were physical and they fouled you and they, you know, were pressing you up the court. And UConn was just a dominant half court defense that didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to foul. They didn't. They never got even if they got beat off the dribble, they had a safety valve, which is aesthetically pleasing things about this team. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about Jeff Adrian for a bit, because in the first half of this game, he's awesome. He has uh, 15 points before the break, and he's really kind of the guy, like every time somebody's like, you know, every time they beat the press, they hit him in the middle and he throws down a dunk. And at one point he gets this big putback and one. That kind of gives UConn, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was a, I don't know if this is exactly the right sequence, but there was a point when he hits uh, this huge bucket and he just starts like flexing at the crowd. And you mentioned the, the mad Louisville crowd for like a good every time Adrian touches the ball after that, they're just booing him lustily. And it's really funny. Like they're they're like when you when you said they're mad, they were like straight up like ready to like hurt the guy. It was really it was crazy. Um, I, I appreciate Jeff Adrian so much, though, just because UConn hasn't literally has not have a, had a player like him since he graduated. Um, I'm kind of ho- really hoping that that uh, Adama Sonogo guy who just committed turns out kind of like him because Adrian was one of my favorite players ever. He's just an absolute monster. What do you what do you um, what did you remember about Adrian and just uh, especially in this game where he's just killing Louisville down the court every time it felt like? I mean, he he's so unappreciated by people or underappreciated, I should say. Um, like he was a double double machine for three and a half years. Like people forget he had a double double, I believe a double double in the George Mason game. He was the only front court player who showed up in that game, um, and like it was so much fun watching him progress as a player because he got stronger every year, and he was already strong when he came in, and he was a just a, he had great rebounding instincts, and he was he was so good at seeing the ball, um, an efficient finisher around the rim, and then by two thousand nine, he's all he's he's basically that whole package that you want in a power forward, and he adds a fifteen foot jumper to it. What, like what a what a spectacular player, versatile player, um, and this he was really feeling himself in this time. I, I just pulled up the game and found I think the one the play you're talking about where he makes a layup and then he does like a like a flex and he's like punching the air and I think that's that's when the fans turn on him. Yeah, they were. He he had a similar thing in the Notre Dame game 
where they broke Notre Dame's uh, home win streak, where I, I think he dunks on someone and he's just like flexing to the crowd. Like, you could not have a more perfect representation of what you want a UConn athlete to be than a guy who's got so much swag that he is just dunking on people in their gyms and then mean mugging, you know, a thousand students. And honestly, if it were a thousand Louisville students against Jeff Adrian, I'm taking Jeff Adrian. Yeah, he he had a an A plus mean mug game, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have messed with him for sure. Like of all the guys on the 2009 UConn basketball team, he's definitely the guy I would least want to get into a, like a fight with. Because I mean, <laughs> at least with at least with the beat, you're like okay. I mean, he's gigantic, but he's also like it doesn't feel that threatening. He still kind of always had that kind of like, you know, kind of happy go lucky, go lucky aloof kind of ness to him. Jeff Adrian was just a pit bull. Like he would just mess you up. And it just, it was so funny to just watch him just like antagonize opposing crowds and just absolutely overpower people. And it's not even like he was that big. Like he was only six, nine. So, you know, it's not like, it's not like he was like David Robinson out there. He was just a, just a, just a big, strong, mean guy who could play, play really good. And I, I think he was probably closer to six six, like in real life, six 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 seven. Like he he was undersized, but he was so strong, and he was again he had those instincts that allowed him to beat bigger guys, and he had the strength to fight them off, you know, in in scrums. He he was just such a delight to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he plays a big part, kind of uh, in the the end of the first half too. A couple of big shots. He had a Duncan transition, a turnaround hook shot, and that. Ends the half. UConn goes on on a fifteen to two run, and they go into halftime leading thirty eight to twenty six. And I don't believe Louisville ever got within ten points again. And if they did, it wasn't for long. Like the second half was of all the episodes of this podcast I've done, and I probably will do. This is probably the least interesting second half I will have because just it was just a, they steamrolled them. Uh, they like the Louisville's press kind of gives up too. Like it didn't feel like they were even really trying anymore. And other than Terrence Williams, like the whole rest of their team just had nothing, which was for a big matchup like this too. Like you figure at least somebody's going to hit a couple of threes and you know just do something. Like Terrence Williams is the only guy, and uh, I mean it was a good game. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, just um, yeah. Well, I, I, just to expand on that, like I, I think there there are times in the second half there are baskets where UConn scores where you can just feel the will escaping not only the, the players but the crowd and the crowd just realizes we've got no shot tonight and that that's a feeling that we really <laughs> have been uh unable to feel in a long time so that that's one of the reasons i think that this game sticks out to me so much is because it is a team asserting its will it's a team just dominating it's a team saying we're better than you and it doesn't matter you can cheer all you want we're winning this game and we're going to win it in you know handily Oh yeah, no, definitely. So um, yeah, so I mean, you know, normally I'd spend more time on the second half, but really there wasn't really much to to say. Uh, I think the, the most interesting part I think was uh, around the the under eight timeout. Um, Louisville hits two straight baskets for a four nothing run. Calhoun calls timeout, and uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I think I think Louisville ends up I think only scoring. Yeah, the final score was sixty eight to fifty one. So they only scored seven points over the next eight minutes. So yeah, not, not very much drama. Um, but yeah, so like just kind of, yeah. So just to kind of, um, just kind of go to the, what stands out, like 
when when you rewatch the game or whenever the last time you rewatch the game, is there anything that stood out to you that maybe you might not have noticed when uh, you know you were watching this uh, you know at, at the Daily Campus uh, you know ten years ago or so? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was doing production that night. Uh, I heard, I remember her, uh, being at the office watching this game. Um, I, I thought Kemba stood out to me more than I remembered. Um, that probably happens a lot more nowadays, just because you know he, Kemba became Kemba. Um, but when I, when I rewatched the game, and he, he really does make such a difference. I think he, he shoots the ball pretty well tonight. He's got four assists, um, you, and he, he just is such a factor that you know it's hard not to. It was hard, I guess, not to be excited at the time when he had games like this. But looking back and knowing what he became, um, it's a fun, fun little thing to watch. This is one of the games, Missouri in the Elite Eight being another one, where you could really see the just the little flicker of greatness that he would show um, in the next two years. Oh, absolutely. When uh, one thing I've noticed about like early Kemba, so I've had a chance to rewatch a couple of the games from the 2009 and 10 seasons uh, before this one, and in most of those games, you'll usually see, oh wow, like you know, this kid can, has real potential. You, you see the toughness, you see the quickness, and you see sort of all the elements of a special player. But in those other games, you, you also tend to notice a lot of you know defensive breakdowns or you know he misses some shots or he'll you know have some turnovers. And in this game, it felt like it was pretty clean. He you know does all of the great Kemba stuff, and it's not like he you know he's not taking over the game. He's hardly the star by any stretch, but he just like you know it was he did he gave them the edge they needed like if he's not in the game i don't know if Austri, dyson and uh, price are as effective just because you know trying to deal with that uh, louisville press for a whole game can be a lot so just kemba's ability to kind of come in there and just be you know the early prototype version of kemba was a huge factor and in this game especially so um yeah i mean i don't know kind of trying to think of what else stood out to me like i guess just I, I forgot how good Louisville was, uh, even if it didn't really come across in this game. Um, yeah, so I, there was a, a couple of things I noticed with stats. So Hashim Thabit, this felt like one of his quiet, awesome games, which it felt like he had a lot of. He has 14 points, 11 rebounds, four blocks, and probably about a bajillion shots that he just sort of weren't taken or were otherwise influenced just because he was there. So, like, you know, Hashim Thabit, you know, I talked about this with Kevin Duffy when we talked about the uh, the six overtime game. Like, you know, it, he hasn't aged very well just because he was such a bust in the NBA. But every time you watch him in college, it's like so much fun to remember just what an awesome player he was at UConn. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, the you know, what happened after college colors people's memories. But, I mean, to be there on campus with him for three years, um, like, it, it was just... You know, I watched every second he played, and every second he was on the court, teams had to play differently. And that was such an advantage because, I mean, no one else in the country had anyone like that. Um, and he, he never really got the offensive game that he needed to grow at the next level. But at, at the, as a college player, like, he, pretty much he, he would have been fine if he had never, like, attempted a post move. He would have been a good player. Um and certainly, I think in 2009, he, he uh, was, I think, the best defensive player in the country. The, the thing that really impresses me is the way he becomes a really, really solid rebounder by 2009. Um, 
He has 11 in this game. I believe he had a triple-double in the Providence game two days before, um, also with 11 rebounds. And he really, by this point, figures out um, the nuances of rebounding. It's not just about him being really tall. Uh, he he's finally figures out that he shouldn't uh, bring the ball down low when he rebounds a ball. Um, he becomes a much more complete player in everything except for you know that offensive skill set by this point. Yeah, and in this game, like one of the things about Thibit that I don't recall ever seeing with any other UConn player, or maybe really any other player at all, was he was so tall that he didn't have to jump to out-rebound or block people. So you would never see him like mistiming things because his feet were usually more or less planted on the ground. And in this game, I distinctly remember a handful of times where like he just kind of reaches up and grabs a rebound over some dude who's like fully extended, jumping as high as he can. And... Yeah, just like his, how, however, I don't know how long it took him to figure this out, but the moment he realized like, oh yeah, I can just out-rebound people without really having to try that hard. I just have to be smart about it was kind of, it must've been a huge breakthrough for him because I, I definitely, from what I've heard, his sophomore year, it wasn't like this. It was a little bit more gangly and kind of out of control. And this season, he felt like he was always in control. Do you, I mean, is that fair to say? Because I mean, I, I don't really, you saw that 2008 season. I really didn't. So is that like kind of a fair assessment? I would say so. Um, like he still, I mean, he still was, he never really grew into his body as a freshman. And even as a sophomore, as you said, he kind of gangly. Um, by his senior year, he, again, yeah, he's in he's much better control. Um, his timing is really developed. And you have to remember, he had not been, I think he had only been playing basketball for a few years after coming over from Tanzania to, I think, Houston um, to play high school basketball. But he'd only been playing the sport for a few years before he got to UConn. Um, so, the, I mean, the two years playing under Calhoun and with, um, you know, our coaches who were, very, very good at developing big men at the time, um, really made him into just a really solid fundamental player um, who could take advantage of his size in ways that you know made UConn a terrific defensive team. No, absolutely. Yeah, so as far as the stats for this game, so Thibit, yeah, we talked about, you know, 14 points, 11 rebounds, and four blocked shots. Um, there were some interesting stats on this line. Um, so for, for one thing, so UConn absolutely dominates this game, and they did so despite the fact that they went 0 for 8 from 3, which is definitely a product of that time because in 2020, you usually aren't beating a top 10 team without hitting a single three. Like that's usually a recipe for disaster, but I guess the way this team was built, it didn't really matter. Like, you know, even though they were going three guards, so maybe that's an even, even stranger thing. you you play a three guard lineup and you don't hit a single three. I don't know. Is that, well, what do you think? Is that, that, that's just a, a weird product of 2009. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a team construction thing because this team ends up taking, I think the fewest amount of three pointers of any, uh, UConn team of recent vintage. Um, I, they, I think I'm, I'm looking on Ken Palm right now, 23%. They were, you know, bottom 15 in the country in, in number of three point attempts as a percentage of total field goals. Um, and they, they did, again, they didn't need to, they had two, you know, guys down low who could make 60, 70% of their shots. They had slashing guards. They had, you know, probably as many dunks as they had three point attempts. Um, and in this game especially, I mean, the, the breaking down the press, you're not going to bring it back out and you know run your offense. You're just going to go 
go slamming on someone's head. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't need three-pointers to beat a team like this. No, but I, it, was, it, was definitely, it was definitely a matter of roster construction and the fact that they had such efficient players, you know, the three, four, and five, um, that they really didn't need to get much from their guards in terms of three-point shooting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, it, let me put it this way. I didn't perceive it to be a bad thing, but it was just definitely one of those things where it's like, man, like, that's just different. Like, you never see that these days. Um, and you don't really see this too much either uh, with a top 10 team and a team that finishes the regular season ranked number one in the country. So Louisville, here, I'm just going to give you Terrence Williams numbers. So he went 11 for 19 and he was three for three from behind the arc. Would you care to guess what the rest of his team was for the whole game? Oh boy, uh, I'll say ten for thirty. Well, you're you're actually close on the first number. Uh, so the rest of Louisville was eleven for forty-five for the game, <laughs> and uh, they went two for fourteen from three, which last time I checked is also not good, especially if you're trying to come from behind. Man, like, yeah. What what more do you have to say? <laughs> it it was just it was a very fun defensive team um just like I, I i've gone back and watched a bunch of this the games from this year and I, I will usually just pick out a random game like i think i watched stony brook a couple weeks ago and like teams just don't know how to attack this team like what do you do you can't like okay you can maybe beat a guard off the dribble what do you do when you're surrounded by adrian at the beat can you kick it out? Maybe, but then a guard's going to come by because they've got some speed on the perimeter. Like, how do you beat this team? I mean, in 2020, the obvious answer is try to hit about four, like, you know, 34 three-pointers, but a lot of teams didn't play that way. Like, you think back to the, the this Big East Conference, and, you know, as great as it was, now that I think back, it wasn't like there were that many great shooters in this conference that year because like most of the really good players that I recall Dewan Blair was you know a forward you know Thabit was a center you know Terrence uh, Williams I mean he could shoot but it's not like that wasn't really his game it was you know he was kind of an all-around type of you know he was he was doing all kinds of stuff um so yeah just with the, in the way the way that the Big East was played that year yeah it's not there weren't any Golden State Warriors out there so you know it was kind of just a UConn was the right team for the right moment that year. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, like I would say Villanova might be the one exception. Maybe Notre Dame. Notre Dame had a couple good shooters that year. And, you know, not coincidentally, those teams gave UConn a bit of trouble um, in 2009. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a big man's league back then, for sure. Yeah, definitely a throwback. Um, do you remember, like, I don't, do you remember Terry, Terrence Williams? Like, do you remember having much of an opinion on him in 2009? Because I actually have to admit, I think he kind of flew under the radar for me. I don't think I really appreciated him very much. Um, but I was very impressed. The guy was clearly very talented. And obviously, he didn't really quite work out in the pros. But I know that when he was, after he was drafted, he famously annihilated the D League and the Summer League. And um, you can kind of see, like, in this game, like, that the guy is obviously tremendously athletic and tremendously talented. Do you think, like, uh, was he, like, one of the more underappreciated Big East guys? Or, or I don't know, is he kind of just kind of properly rated? Uh, I would say so. I mean, he, he, like, he was in a weird spot because he was a fairly, you know, I think he was 6'6 six, six or 6'7 six, maybe. And, he, you know, he could shoot, he could dribble, he could, um, you know, he could finish. He was kind of a complete player, but not not the best at any one thing. But he was good at pretty much everything. Um, 
you know, very valuable player to have if he's your best player. I mean, I guess Louisville went on to be a one seed and got to the Elite Eight, so um, I guess maybe he's underrated. If, if he's the best player on your team and you go to an Elite Eight, then yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so broadcast beefs. So every every episode I like to try to you know kind of analyze the the commentators. Uh, so your, your announcers for this game is Dan Shulman, Dick Vitale, and Aaron Andrews. Um, you know, I th- generally speaking, I, I had to say they did a pretty good job. Um, Dick Vitale was really funny though, because he, he, he obviously he's like, like he's like, he loves Rick, Rick Pitino. And, uh, in this game, he's just like, you know, Rick Pitino, he is like, you know, absolutely a lock to make the Basketball Hall of Fame. You know, he's going to, you know, have his great, great career. And so in his defense, Patino did make the college, ba- the excuse me, the the basketball Hall of Fame, and uh, things have gone somewhat downhill for him since. So, <laughs> Rick Patino, what a, what a guy! What what are what is our thoughts on Rick Patino? Just since while we're on the subject, uh, I would say I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, uh, he seems to be like if you were thinking of a stereotype of every single. You know, shady college basketball coach would be Rick Pitino. Um, like for all the the hate I know UConn fans have with John Calipari, like I hate Rick Pitino a lot more than I hate John Calipari. Um, just like Pitino, just seems like like he should be taking bets in a side alley in 1972. Like that that's just what he seems like to me. He he just I don't know. Maybe maybe he'll work out at Iona, but. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan. Well, that assumes he survives the latest uh, NCAA <laughs> investigation. Yeah, the fact that Iona hired him was definitely eyebrow raising. So, man, I don't know. Like, they gotta. We'll just sort of see how that all kind of plays out. Louisville in the 2010s was such a. They were like the wild, wild west. So, it's definitely, definitely a, a crazy program. Um, I have one more thought on the the commentators. Uh, Dick Vitale at one point also gets on a huge rant about uh, Luke Herringoti from Notre Dame. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> great college player. Um, actually, it's funny. So he gets drafted by the Celtics. And uh, I, I re- distinctly remember like like during like one of my like I wouldn't call it an internship, but during one of my like, you know, go to the newspaper and kind of get some experience type of deals. I got to go to a Celtics game and I happened to be there the one time Luke Herringoti went off. He went for 17 and 11 for the Celtics. And I think it's the only time he ever did anything in the NBA. But I bring it up because Dick Vitale just is just like talking about how he was projected to be a late second round pick in the following year's NBA draft. And he's like, that's outrageous. Luke Herringoti is this great, great player. He's going to be awesome. And I was just like, oh, so whatever happened to him? He was drafted 52 overall and mostly played in the D League and overseas. So I love I love Dick Vitale, but he's not exactly the best uh, prognosticator when it comes to these sorts of things. He, his track record is a little bit hit or miss. Yeah, I guess there's a reason he didn't make it as an NBA coach. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, he's. <laughs> I'm just talking about his predictions. He, the dude knows basketball, but whatever. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe not, maybe not the pros as much. Perhaps, yeah. Did you have any any thoughts on this commentator, or just you know the old uh, Big Monday broadcast on ESPN in general? I miss it. <laughs> I miss the way Big Monday used to be. Um, the only thing missing is you know McDonough and Billis and Raftery, which I think is my favorite announced team of all time but man these these monday games just used to feel so special um 
because you'd always have a, a great Big East game, whether UConn was playing or not, and then it'd be followed up, I think, by a Big 12 game, and then you'd get some West Coast game at midnight, and just, like, it, it feel like, especially since UConn left the Big East, um, like, it's just, those special kind of things don't really feel as special. So going back to a game like this was just, it was a trip, because, uh, you know, it brings you back to a time when, and again, you know, I was in college at the time, so you just leave the TV on ESPN all night, and you get, you know, two or three great games, and you'd have some fun stuff to talk about the next day. Yeah, this season was really a great season to get introduced to college basketball, because, so I, I grew up in Massachusetts, so the closest thing we had to college basketball really was BC, and and granted, in when I was in high school, BC was actually pretty good. It was like during like the Jared Dudley and Craig Smith eras. So like you know, they were consistently competitive and you know usually ranked, but it wasn't the same. You know, they, even when they were good, they, they didn't have the juice that like the Red Sox or the Patriots had at that point. And um, so coming to UConn and just getting to getting to know every all these teams and learn all these rivalries and yeah, it's like you said, you put on Big Monday and it's like, is UConn on? Okay, great, I got to watch you know UConn and just watch them just bulldoze somebody but if not it's like oh cool who's Pitt playing tonight okay so I get to watch kind of scout these other teams and learn about them and kind of learn to hate them and you know learn who the guys to respect are and who's kind of not so good and the nice thing was in those days it was like everybody was good it's not like kind of you know the last few years in the American conference like this past season was the first time I can really recall actually having that kind of experience with the American because like first and foremost UConn was worth watching again and then like not to give the American conference teams that much credit, but at least the rest of the teams were at least adequate enough. And there was at least enough talent that you can kind of go in each game and be like, okay, so who, who we got, like who, who's good, who's not, you know, and it was more fun. It was like the first time since like we were in college, basically that you could kind of actually get excited about like just the, the weekly kind of uh, ups and downs, you know, like, you know, the last five years were were tough because it just was so uninteresting and it was never like that before back in this time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, some of that's I'm sure because, you know, we're not young anymore and we're professionals and we have jobs and lives. But, um, like, I gave the American a shot at the start and I, I was trying and, like, it just didn't feel right. And I just kind of fell into watching UConn games and tournament time. And, you know, at this past season I, I got a little bit more into the national college games again, which was fun because um, I – remembered how much I missed it and from you know this 2009 uh time period and up to maybe 2013 12 13 but yeah I, I could never I could never get into it with the AAC teams it just even the teams I didn't like like I've already forgotten who was in the, who like who was in our league like I've already put them out of my mind yeah it's like uh pretty much Cincinnati was the only team I could consistently be like oh yeah like we can't lose to those guys. And it was irritating that they lost to them as so as many times as they did. But now it's like starting next year or, or whenever, whenever there'll be basketball again, which is a whole other, a whole other thing. Um, yeah. It's going to be just so much fun to just be able to be like, yeah, Villanova, we know they're going to be good. You know, Georgetown, Providence, these are teams we know and we actually enjoy playing and enjoy beating and hate losing to. And like the newer teams like Butler, UConn played them in a national title game, so there is really meaningful history there. And um, Creighton is good, like like really, really good. So you know you can respect them, and obviously it, w- it won't take very long for some real rivalries to kind of come across there. 
And Xavier, I don't know. I mean, I love Xavier Twitter. They've got a really some really strong uh, a really strong fan base from what I gather. And I know you and uh, you and Porter have had a lot of fun with them. So it's gonna be in the- like Xavier Twitter's fun. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I'm excited just to like. It's fun to be in a league where the fans primarily care about basketball. That like that more than anything else is it, and because that's how it was in the Big East. Like yeah, like West Virginia loved football. You know, Pitt I guess loved football. But Syracuse is a basketball school. Georgetown's a basketball school. Uh, you know, Providence Seton Hall is a basketball. Villanova is a basketball school. We're going back to a league of teams that think like us. You know, as much as anything, what is exciting about it? Yeah, I, I have to say when you know, the announcement was made and all the, you know, when UConn's going back to the Big East, one, it was refreshing to see all those schools and their fans being like, this is great. UConn's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to, this is going to be enjoyable. And then now it's kind of shifted to the whole, we're going to talk shit again. It's so fun to just see them talking shit about stuff we actually care about. Because all the American conference schools, like their whole thing is like, they're like, oh, you guys suck at football. It's like, great. That's well established. We don't really care that much. <laughs> Whereas when Seton Hall wants to talk shit, they're just like, I don't know, like, you remember the time AJ Price stole laptops? And it's like, okay, well, that's kind of played out, but touche. Like, at least you're speaking our language now. Like, you're actually talking shit about stuff we're kind of sensitive about. So <laughs> it's like right. going like, to be so much more fun. Like, the maddest I've ever been about sports was when Seton Hall beat us in 2012. And that's because, you know, we had owned them for so long. And then they came and they just, like, whipped our ass some game in 2012. And, like, that's the maddest I've ever been online. And it's because this was a group of fans who we've interacted with, who we have a history with, and they knew how to push our buttons. They knew like to, how to get under our skin. And like, if you're a Tulane fan, you're like, oh, you know, we beat you in football a couple times. And it's like, dude, like, I appreciate you trying, but this is not working. No. Yeah. Seton Hall, man. One of the th- seeing their, like, rise from like you know in this era like the 2009 era Seton Hall really wasn't anything at all like they were consistently bottom five in the conference the fact that they're like they're actually kind of good now is exciting because like they have some history and they've frankly kind of benefited more than anybody else maybe except for Villanova from UConn being in the American so it's going to be really funny when like you know like Sonogo was like almost considered a lock to go to Seton Hall and now it's like (laughs) Yeah, Daddy's Home, I think, is what you and Porter have been kind of going on in Twitter about. So it's going to be so funny to sort of have them just be like, oh, shit, like, what, are, what what's going on? Like, UConn's good again, and they're stealing all our recruits. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that part's exciting. I'm, I'm excited for the first game at MSG with St. John's because that is going to be, like, if that doesn't sell out, I'd be very surprised and be, like, 15,000 UConn fans and 5,000 St. John's fans. Yeah. We are, we are so hungry for that game and that arena specifically, that it's just, it's going to be so much fun. I can't wait to go Yeah, whenever this ends. A couple of, yeah, geez. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I did an episode with Tim Fontenot about the uh, the Michigan State Elite, uh, Elite Eight game. And we we're just thinking like, man, like Madison Square Garden was just insane that day. And I was trying to think like, when is Madison Square Garden ever as good as when UConn's in town and when UConn's got a big game? Like the Knicks suck. So obviously it's not usually with them. You know, St. John's is rarely that relevant and, you know, their crowds aren't as good anyway. So, yeah, it's like when the first UConn-St. John's game at Madison Square Garden and especially the first Big East tournament, 
I, I don't think so. I, I live up in the Boston area, so I don't think I'll make it to the St. John's game, but I like definitely going to try to make it to the Big East tournament. And it's like, I'm like irrationally excited about it, even though a part of me knows that it may not happen until 2022. Yeah. Cross your fingers. But yeah, it just, it's so exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, like I went to the Big East tournament every year from 20, I guess 2007 to, uh, Yukon's last year. Actually, no. I went to I went to the 2013 final to kind of say my goodbyes to the Big East before you know everything happened. Um, like, there's nothing like it. Like, the, there's I went. I've probably been to four Yukon Syracuse Big East tournament games, and like those feel like a boxing match. The way the crowds react and go at each other. Um, but even when it's not Yukon and Syracuse, like the people there know basketball and they know what a good basketball game is and like they probably gamble on basketball so they're all like up on the teams and it's a knowledgeable crowd even if it's like neutrals um the, i've never been in an atmosphere like that for any other sporting event yeah i i gotta say i was gonna say covering the 2011 big east tournament was without question one of the greatest experiences of my life in in sports and journalism and just in general because like for all the reasons you just said and obviously because of what happened that particular tournament too. And, um, you know, I, I'm I really, I really want to go back. It's the only time I've done it so far. Cause I, I didn't get to go the next year and they basically, that was kind of cur- curtains down after that. So it, it's definitely looking, I've already been in touch with all my roommates from college and been like, yeah, when, when this happens, we're just going to be a thing. We're going to go. Cause you know, we all, a few of them live in the New York area. A couple of them are in Connecticut and, you know, me and a couple of the others are up in uh, Massachusetts. So what perfect, what better excuse to get together and enjoy some UConn basketball, right? Isn't like that kind of the most exciting thing about it. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, Kevin, I, I, let's, I don't want to keep it for too long. So why don't we just uh, wrap this up with one more thing on the Louisville game? So every episode we ask, you know, who's the top dog, you know, the, the best player who won the game. And I uh, wanted to ask you that same question. So in the, this Louisville game, who, who won the game? defensively he was so dominant in this game and he really you know is responsible for so many of the what did you say 40 missed shots by people who aren't Terrence Williams I mean that's an estimate but it feels about right yeah yeah so I'm I'm gonna say Thabit yeah I I can't argue with that Uh, my guy that I wrote down actually I wrote down two Uh, Jeff Adrian was one he was just so impactful like you know all the dunks and just frankly he was like just just absolutely on the crowd and they they did not take it well. It's I, I respect it so hard when like a player is feeling himself and he just starts antagonizing a crowd and that crowd just basically devolves into a bunch of twelve year olds being like, Yeah, well your mom because that's pretty much how Louisville started treating him and he was just like, All right, I'm just gonna dunk on you in transition for the forty seventh time today. Uh, big respect for Jeff Adrian. And then the other one is Calhoun, just unrecognizing what was happening and being like, All right, we're just gonna go three guards the rest of the way. Louisville won't know what to do with it and he was right they they didn't have any real answer uh, but yeah no Thabit I mean Thabit could be the top dog in any game this season but so could a lot of other people that team was so much fun I, I love I'm glad we got to like I'm glad you suggested this game in this season because this was a uh, I have so much nostalgia for this team it's I've never seen anything like it since really all the teams ever since even the good ones have been not as dominant Many of them have been like quote unquote better, but like and more successful. But 
nothing like just seeing a team just absolutely roll over it. Good teams like this one did. Yeah, I mean, I could gush about this team forever. Like, I, I could have picked any one of, like, ten games that I could just go on and on about with this team. Because, like, it wasn't... There was no one guy that you could say was, like, the best player in the country. Like, you know, North Carolina had that year. Um, or UConn's had other years, like in 2004. But everyone, like, everyone who played significant minutes was a, an above-average to really good college player. And the chemistry that this team had was so good from playing together for three years. Um, that it was just so much fun to watch until, you know, Dyson gets hurt and things kind of go to hell. Yeah. I mean, it's funny too, like, you know, Jerome Dyson getting hurt and the team going to hell that still meant going to a final four. <laughs> right. Like yes. Rel- it, relative hell. It, it says something, it says a lot when, you know, you lose a guy like that and we're just like, Oh man, what could have been? And the rest of the country's like, you guys made the final four. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, but it's true. Like, yeah, they could have, like, it feels like they could have run the table. Like they absolutely whooped Syracuse in that game where he went down and, you know, yeah, it was, it obviously mattered. Like I, they, I don't think they lose to Michigan state if they have him. UNC, you said earlier, you think that they beat UNC. I feel like it's, that's a really great. What if, cause that UNC team was damn good. So matchup the beat against Hansborough like I, I just I I don't think Hansborough gets a shot off within 10 feet of the basket so if he hits jump shots yeah maybe maybe they win but yeah I love that matchup well it would have been at the very least a really good game and instead of whatever the 30 point blowout it was I, I forget what the final score of that national title game was but it wasn't very compelling but whatever that's not here or there well, uh, Kevin, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, love to have you back. Be happy to talk more 2009 UConn sometime. Um, so obviously people can follow you at twi- on Twitter at No Escalators, and I assume probably anybody who would listen to this podcast probably already does. So uh, I guess a- any other thing you want to plug or anything you want to shout out while I got you? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Just uh, on the lowercase uh, No Escalators, I-, I think most people who follow us know that, but uh, just just in case there are some uh, things with capital letters that are uh, unseemly, that that's all coming from my compatriot. <laughs> it is kind of, I, I have to admit, it has kind of uh, amused me the rare occasions where you two disagree on something. And then you just have like, you know, the no escalators Twitter literally arguing with itself. And every once in a while when it happens, I have to remind myself, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. It's the, the two, two different people are running this show, but yeah, so you guys do great work. Uh, you guys on Twitter is like my favorite thing. And, you know, just uh, generally going to get a little sentimental here. You know, you were a senior when I was a freshman. So, you know, I always looked up to you as a writer back then. And, you know, always loved reading your stuff uh, with the Yukon blog and then with a dime back and, you know, all that stuff. So love talking hoops with you and uh, love to do it some more. And, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week and uh, we'll have some more good stuff for you. So, um, yeah, we'll see you all later.